So it turns out that, um, that Christianity is actually not the only religion that teaches salvation by grace alone. Uh, I uh, teach uh, an apologetics class with the high school seniors over at Trinity just two days a week. I'm not a real teacher. I just nightlife as a teacher. Um, but as part of the apologetics class, I want them to have an experience of other religions. Um, that I don't want them to go off to college and, uh, and have a Buddhist roommate and then be shocked that their roommate is a really decent person. Uh, and so one of the things we do in the class, I've worked with Laura Wilson, who's another teacher there. She actually does most of the work, is, um, is one day in the spring we get a bus and put my class and her class in the bus and we drive over the mountain, over the Pali, to the large white Buddhist Hongwangji temple on the left side of the Pali as you go into town. And uh, they have been gracious enough to welcome us in, give us a tour around the campus, um, and then... In the end, they kind of bring us into, I don't know what you call it, perhaps the the sanctuary. And one of the priests there explains what they believe to us, just so we can hear and learn and understand. And uh, being on the property there is one of the more peaceful places um, that I've been on the island. The Polly's right outside, so you can hear the cars rushing through, and there's this sense of busyness. But in the temple, it's quiet. And uh, all the windows and doors are open, and the breeze flows through, and everyone who is there is calm and at peace. And the priest explained to us in their tradition, and this um, this temple is connected with a form of Buddhism in uh, Japan that in English sometimes we call Pure Land Buddhism, and uh, in res- uh, in uh, contrast to other forms of Buddhism, they have a more personalized view of the Amida Buddha. He's a person, he works in history, and he is bringing everyone to the truth. And it happens slowly that, that he is infinitely gracious, so they teach, and that everyone is on a journey towards the truth, and Amida Buddha is working in your life through your circumstances and the story of your life to bring you to the truth. And whether it happens in this life or the next life or a hundred lives from now, he will accomplish it. You don't need to work or figure it out. It's not up to you that Amida Buddha is infinitely gracious and he will bring you to the truth. And they explained that they weren't even concerned really that we were at a Christian high school, that, that probably even there we had found some piece of the truth. And that uh, in every religion there's truth to be found and that uh, Amida Buddha is so gracious that he will bring us towards the truth and we will all arrive at the end. And uh, I have to tell you that's extremely attractive. I don't know, I don't expect that I'll ever give up on Christianity, but if I do, I'll probably become a Pure Land Buddhist. (laughs) It's just so relaxing. Um, and, and that sort of teaching is so freeing, and, uh, and it, well, it's actually not, but that's, um, well, we can talk about that a different day. But it feels like it is because it connects with the values of our culture, right? That there's, there's no condemnation, and everyone can have their way, and we'll all arrive at the end, and it's all great, which is not the truth, which is what is wrong about that. Uh, but this is, is what they teach. It's, um, it's a religion that also teaches salvation by grace alone, just in a very different way. Um, 
The problem with the Bible has with that is that from the Bible's perspective, it's just not true that every path is a path. In fact, John proclaims here quite boldly that Jesus is actually the only way. That he is, in his person, the meeting place between God and man. And that there is no other. He will um, build on that theme extensively as we go through the, through the gospel, but um, all the major themes of John are opened up here in this introduction. Then I want us to see where he begins to open it up. Last time I began speaking about verse 14, where he says, And the word became flesh. I talked about the Greek word sarks. It's not a, he didn't become a person or a man or a body. He became meat, flesh. Well, the very next phrase is, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And uh, I'm actually going to spend most of the time this morning talking about that phrase, dwelt among us, because... In Greek, the word there for dwelt is, uh, is built off of the word skinne, which is the same word for tabernacle. And so the Greek Uyghurs probably would have missed this. They would have been like, oh, God came to dwell with us. That, that's what John is teaching, and that is what he's teaching. But for those who come from a Jewish Hebrew background, they would hear that word, and they would think, he, they would hear literally, he tabernacled among us. And they would immediately think of the tabernacle. The tabernacle of the Old Testament, where the Israelites were brought by God out of slavery in Egypt so that they could meet with him in the wilderness, so that he could be their God and they would be his people. And as soon as they arrived in the wilderness, he began giving them instructions on how to build the tabernacle in the tent of meeting, the place where God would dwell with his people. There was a um, sort of an outer courtyard curtain. If you've read through the Old Testament, a lot of times this is kind of where people give up because the curtain is so many feet high and so many feet wide in the basin and then and has this and this. And it's just a, it's a lot of details. But they're important because God is describing the place where he will dwell, that there's an altar to offer sacrifices and a basin to wash your hands. And in the center of it is the tent of meeting with the holy place and the most holy place and the Ark of the Covenant and the presence where God would dwell in the midst of the tent of the meeting. And um, one of my Old Testament professors in seminary pointed out to us that if you were an Israelite, um, the book of Numbers actually describes how the camp is laid out and the, the tabernacle is in the middle of the camp of perhaps a million or more people. And there's certain tribes on the east side, certain tribes on the west side, certain tribes on the north side, certain tribes on the south side, the tabernacle in the middle. And so wherever you are, you're in your tent, and you peek out your door at night, and just over there is the tabernacle, and it's glowing. Because God's presence resides there. It's, it's the physical manifestation of what God has said. I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell in your midst. And as soon as they get in the wilderness, it becomes a reality, a reality that they are gathered around and in the center of the camp is the tabernacle where God's presence dwells. The tabernacle is the place of God's presence and glory dwelling in the midst of his people. 
And so if Jesus came to tabernacle amongst us, a number of things are implied. One of them is that Jesus is the presence and glory of God dwelling in the midst of his people. He's that presence and glory seen visibly, that it's important from God from the beginning of redemptive history that he would be seen visibly and dwell in the middle of his people. And now in this age, in the New Testament age, that happens not in the tabernacle, but in the true tabernacle, in Jesus, who is now seen visibly among his people. And because Jesus is tabernacling among his people, when you see Jesus, you see the glory of God the Father. The same word for dwell, for tabernacle, in later Jewish history, um, was transformed into the word Shekinah, the Shekinah glory. And that's the phrase that they used to describe that glowing presence that resided within the tabernacle in the most holy place, protected there, because if you saw it, you would not live through the experience. One of the first times we hear about this glowing glory of presence, the Shekinah glory of God, is the passage we've referenced a number of times in recent months where Moses cries out and says, show me your glory. And the Lord's answer is that he hides Moses in the rock and covers over his hand while he passes by and then removes his hand. And for just a moment, Moses sees God's backside passing away. He sees just the fading edge of the Shekinah glory. And as this is happening, the Lord proclaims his name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And then immediately after that, he takes his word and he writes it with his own finger on stone tablets. The Ten Commandments. So we have the Shekinah glory, the, the, the brilliant, uh, glowing isn't even right. It's, it's, it's so bright you don't live through it, but it's, it's somehow it's light. You have the Shekinah glory, and you have the Lord's name, his character, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and you have his word written down. And Jesus is all three of those things. That John has already called him the Word. He now says he's the tabernacle. And in the rest of verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son, the special loved Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And um, it's... Not easy to catch without going into a little bit of linguistic history, but grace and truth are connected with the last two words of God's name, which in our translation is usually translated love and faithfulness. The love word, um, perhaps some of you heard of the word hesed. It's an Old Testament Hebrew word that's really that's untranslatable. When you try and translate it, you end up with long, hyphenated combinations like um, faithful, gracious, loving kindness, faithful, loving kindness. Um, we talked about this recently in the, in the Pearl Harbor 
um, small group. It's hesed. It's, it's faithful love. It's love that doesn't go away based on grace. It's the kind of relationship that David and Jonathan had with each other, and it's the word that God uses in his name uh, in Exodus 33, declares his name, and the last two words are uh, love. It's actually hesed it's in ESV translated love. And so if you take that word and you translate it into Greek, one of the words you could get is charis, which uh, often in English ends up as grace. And then the other word in Old Testament is emet, which means truth. Um, but in Hebrew, truth, it, it's not just um, true as in like not false. It's true. It's true, but it's dependable. Because it's true, it's dependable and trustworthy and sure. It's the real deal. And so that finds its way from Hebrew into Greek into English, and we end up with truth. So in the Old Testament, um, God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, chesed and emmet. And here in John, we get grace and truth. And so almost all the commentators agree that here in this little verse— John is alluding to the tabernacle and, at the same time, the Shekinah glory of Jesus and God's own character and name. He's the, what is the glory? It's full of grace and truth. It means that, um, that Jesus is the embodiment of loving, kind, faithful, gracious love. The kind of love... Like I said, personified for us in the Old Testament in David and Jonathan. That's Jesus. It's the description of his nature. Also truth, trustworthy, dependable, doesn't change. All of these things characterize him. He, um, he's them personified. He's the real deal. True can also mean the final or the best one. So opposed to that's the wrong one and this is the right one, it can mean that's a good one, this is the better one. It's the true one. We have the first tabernacle and now comes the true tabernacle. Not that the first one wasn't, was wrong, but this is the true one. Jesus is the true tabernacle. We have the first shining glory and this is the true glory. We have the first law, the first word written down on stone tablets, but this is the true word. Jesus is the embodiment of all these things. The tabernacle, the glory, the word. This corresponds to what we see in John 1.9, where he says, The true light, because the glory, the word, God's presence, all of these things are what brings light into the world. And this is the true light. The true light which enlightens everyone, which is in the process of coming into the world. Verse 14, For he became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, just as he did in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus, as the true tabernacle, is God's presence and shining glory among his people. Well, there's another thing I want you to see about Jesus being the tabernacle. Uh, but let me back up a little bit and uh, share with you, if you'll indulge me, a little moment of um, interpretation. So when a 
New Testament author is quoting the Old Testament, they're borrowing not just the words or the phrase or an allusion to the Old Testament, but they are connecting with the story they're a part of and importing everything from it. And here's why. I'll explain what this means in a second. That uh, if God spoke into history, if it was God, the creator of the world, who spoke to Abraham and became flesh in the person of Jesus, then that means that the ultimate source of knowledge is found in a story. And not story in the fictionalized sense, but story as events. That because God spoke, events have meaning. And he's told us and shaped a little bit of that meaning in our reality. So we as a people believe that a story told in history is a, is a reliable foundation for knowledge about the way the world is. And that is part of why we worship. That when we gather together in worship, we are telling the story, retelling, reenacting these events from history over and over and over again. When we gather here to worship, we are proclaiming and reminding one another that the Lord God of heaven and earth made the planet and he's the God of everything. That we are fallen and broken in sin. He's He's in the process of redemption. It's not done yet, but someday it will be and death will be undone that all those things are communicated in the flow of the service because they're communicated in the flow and the words of Scripture because that's what God has done in history. That's our story, and it provides us meaning. That simple story answers all of the worldview questions, like, well, what is the world? Well, it's the Lord's. He made it. Well, what is a human being? Well, they're made in God's image with great dignity but also broken. Well, what's the problem? Sin is the problem. Well, what's the answer? Grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ, his sacrifice. Well, what's the end of the story? Well, it's a great ending. Death is going to be undone. That all that meaning is provided for us by inhabiting a story. And it was no different for the authors of the New Testament except their story came to them from the Old Testament. So they find their meaning in worship in the retelling of the Old Testament stories. And so when something dramatic happens in their day and they reference a piece of scripture, what they're saying is, do you remember that part of our story? Do you remember what happened back there? How we got meaning from that? That's what's happening now. So we actually did this last Sunday in talking about the creation. That John, he doesn't even quote, he just alludes to Genesis 1 in the beginning. In the beginning, oh, you're like, oh, Genesis. In the beginning was the word. Well, what's Genesis 1 about? Well, it's, it's about the creation. Well, what's the meaning of Genesis 1? Well, I think the meaning, the communicative intent of Genesis 1 is that God made the world. He made everything, and he made it well. He made it good. And so we should worship him because he's a good God. And he's not just our God. He's the God of all peoples. And everything on earth is his stuff, and so we should treat it in accordance with that, that all that meaning comes to us in Genesis 1. So when John says, in the beginning, Genesis 1, remember that part of our story? In the beginning was the Word. He's importing all of that meaning to Jesus. Jesus is the good God who made the world. It's all his stuff. We should worship him, and we should treat the world like his stuff, that all that meaning is imported. 
So now we do the same thing with the tabernacle. Well, what's the meaning of the tabernacle? Well, it's God's presence, but it's God's presence because it's the place where God and men meet with one another. It's God dwelling with his people. So if you're an Israelite, you remember in our history, the tabernacle is the place where God dwelt with us. If we wanted to know who he was, we had to go to the tabernacle. It's the only place he dwells. If we want to worship him, we do it at the tabernacle. If we feel a sense of guilt and brokenness because of our sin, we go to the tabernacle. And in offering sacrifices there, we receive forgiveness for our sins and a restored relationship with God. All these things have to happen at the tabernacle. And as soon as it's built, the Lord begins saying something that he says over and over and over and over again in Old Testament history. This is my dwelling place. Meet with me there. And Deuteronomy says countless times, when you enter the land, I will tell you the place where I will dwell and you will put the tabernacle, which becomes the temple, there. And all of the feasts you must go there. And so it becomes the greatest act of apostasy or sin in Israel's history to go anywhere else. To go to a different God or even to worship the same God in a different place. That later on, another king is like, well, I don't want these guys going down to Jerusalem. I'll just build another temple to God here. And in that moment, this is Jeroboam, by the way, he becomes the gold standard for evil. That every king after him who did evil, it says, and he did evil as had done Jeroboam. Because he set up a different place to worship, that God's glory dwells in the tabernacle, and that is the meeting place between God and man. And so when John's saying, Jesus tabernacled among us, he's importing all of that meaning. That if Jesus is the dwelling place of God's glory, he is the place from now on where men meet with God. If you want to be in God's presence and see his glory, you go to Jesus. If you want to hear his words and understand his law, you go to Jesus. If you feel guilty out of sin or a sense of your own brokenness and you need relief and to restore your relationship with God, you go to Jesus. And to go anywhere else for any other reason as one of the most broken things that we can do. If Jesus is the true tabernacle, then he is the true, the only, the final, the best meeting place with God. If you want to do business with God, you do it through Jesus. He's the only way. He's where we meet with God and find his presence and glory, hear his words, learn about him, and find satisfaction for our sin. As I said, it's the, um, it's the greatest act of apostasy to go any other place. And of course, giving our broken nature, that's exactly what happens. 
It's talking about verse 14, but I'm also talking about verses 9 and 10. So earlier we read in 9, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So it becomes a pattern throughout the Gospel of John that Jesus arrives in a situation with all of his shining glory, as of the only one sent from the Father, full of grace and truth, and some people see it and they receive it. And others walk away. Uh, A few chapters ahead in John chapter 6, Jesus starts saying some really dramatic and disturbing things. Among them, he says, you must gnaw on my flesh and drink my blood if you're to have any life in you. And so a bunch of people freak out and leave, including most of his disciples. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, will you also leave me? And Peter says, Lord, where else would we go? You have the very words of life. Notice what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say that wasn't weird at all. (laughs) I take Peter's answer to mean that was really creepy. I do not understand what's happening here, but there's something here. The something that we've always been searching for in all of our history as a people, the, the word of God and the glory of his presence, this is it. Your words have life. Where else would we go? My friends, for those who have received Jesus as the glory of the Father, the one and only That is where we go, and that is the honor that we give him, that he is the favorite son, the one and only, the meeting place between God and man. A few years back, maybe just a few of you remember, we had um, a young couple here, the Cunninghams, Vinny and Lily Cunningham. Well, actually, we just had Vinny because uh, Vinny was a newly revived believer, and Lily was not, very not, Um. She grew up in a household of uh, Hinduism and Hare Krishna. And when her husband got revived as a Christian and wanted to start taking their son, Sean, to worship here, she was greatly annoyed. Um, So Vinny and Sean came by themselves when they were able. They usually came in about 15 minutes late, walked right up, and sat in the front row, which is one of my favorite things about them, by the way. Um. Lily just had this visceral opposition to whatever was happening here. Um, And uh, over the course of the next couple years, her husband, Vinny, as he began to grow, began treating her differently. And um, that had an impact on her. Uh, They moved from here to Japan. They were in the Navy, and so they got stationed in Yokosuka. And uh, Vinny calls me up, and he says, "Um, you know, we had a daughter born. I want her baptized Um, I haven't found any Christian church here in Japan, and we would love for you to come out and baptize our daughter. And my immediate thought was, how is Lily going to feel about this? He was like, oh, she feels fine. I was like, can I chat with her? (laughs) So I called Lily on Skype. It's like, Lily, um, Vinny said thus and thus. Um, Where are you in this process? And she says, you know, Nathaniel... um, you know that 
Vinny and I have our different beliefs. But I respect his beliefs and the ways that they have changed him in his lifetime. And uh, they're not my beliefs, but I respect them. And I actually said to him, you probably want to get our daughter baptized, don't you? Why don't, why don't you do that? I think that would be a good idea. So I went over to Japan and uh, stayed with him for four days and baptized their daughter. And on the last day, we're all having breakfast. And I'm going to head to the airport. And um, it's Vinny and Lily and uh, Lily's mom, the Hare Krishna Hindu. We're all sitting at the table having breakfast together. It's vegan. And um, somehow we get in a conversation about international Christian missions. When, when, which, when you're a pastor and you're talking to non-Christians, that's just let's uh, let's not just let's not talk about this. Uh, but the conversation keeps rolling, and um, Lily's mom at some point says, "That's right. Those Christian missionaries had it all wrong. They went into every culture and they just forced Jesus down people's throats." It was so wrong, destroying all of these different cultures. And Lily says, Mom, I don't think that was the problem. I don't think that Jesus was the problem. I think that's, that the missionaries came pushing Jesus and Western culture. I was like, wow. <laughs> Lily just defended Christian missions. <laughs> um, so the story goes on, and um, there's more details than I should probably tell here. Uh, Shortly after that, Lily was diagnosed with cancer. But she had seen, through Sean and through the words of the Bible, the glory and the grace of Jesus, and called out to him more and more the rest of her years. And one of her last acts before she breathed her last was to call her husband into her room and say, Vinny, That picture above my bed of Hare Krishna that my mom put there creeps me out. Get it out of the house. Because only in Jesus do we meet with God. And I am blessed to have known them. My friends, when understood and comprehended, that is the the offensive authoritarian, and life-giving nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That life is found in him as the meeting place between God and man and no other place. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you 